Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Skewed and Reviewed Skewedcast. I'm Gareth, creator of Skewed and Reviewed. You can catch us online at SKNR.net as we cover movies, games, television, pop culture, theme parks, entertainment, technology, and so much more. And I'm joined, as always, with Justin and Michael, and uh, it's glad to have Michael back on the show. Joseph will be back with us next week. He had a commitment where he had to literally get a U-Haul and move some stuff around out of storage and around, and this was his week to do it. He couldn't put it off any longer, so uh, hopefully he will be back next week. And we have a bunch of stuff to talk about. Now, one thing I did want to mention right off the block before I meant, uh, before we get into the topics uh, is that you can catch us online, sknr.net. You can go to Pinal, P-I-N-A-L, central.com, keyword skewed, and see our gaming reviews and content we do for the 12 newspapers. Each Friday, I put up a segment from BJ Shea's Geek Nation on KSWFM, which is an intercom station. Put that on our site. They carry it on theirs, radio.com, so on and so forth. And we also have Skewed and Reviewed, the magazine, which is our quarterly magazine. You can get it online, various places, Barnes & Noble, uh, Magster, MagCloud, Flipster. Uh, new issue is coming out in March. One of the topics we're going to have is the CES uh, 2021 recap. And before we get into our topics, I did want to mention my ADVD release. Uh, Batman Soul of the Dragon is out, and this has actually been one of the more popular of the new animated Batman uh, shows. This is a rated R one, which is continuing the trend that Warner Animation has done uh, with doing R-rated um, animation. And this is set in the 70s, and this is an Elseworlds adventure finding Bruce Wayne traveling, uh, training under a master sensei. So, of course, uh, it's got a lot of special features, really good picture and sound quality. I've got the 4K Ultra Blu-ray and digital version. I'm going to be rolling this on the PS5 to uh, really show it off. And it is available video on demand and going to be available uh, for purchase very, very soon. So, gentlemen, uh, big news this week that on Monday we got news that uh, Lucasfilm Games was essentially rebranding. Uh, LucasArts had been shut down by Disney and that they had licensed out the name to use for Star Wars and properties under their moniker. The very next day we get told that a uh, new Indiana Jones game is coming from Machine Games and will be released by Bethesda. And then the very next day, the bombshell dropped a brand new Star Wars game for Massive Entertainment, who are behind the creation of The Division, will be released by Ubisoft. So uh, let's open this up. My first thought on it was, OK, um, what happened to EA? And they were quick to come out and say, we still have EA, we still have Star Wars games in the works, uh, one of which is widely believed to be a sequel to Jedi Knight Fallen Order. Um, so, Michael, welcome back. Why don't you start us off? Uh, what was your take on all of this? Oh, yeah, I think it's actually, it's, I think it's pretty exciting to kind of branch out because I think the the thing that happens um, when, when you're just one developer in particular, I understand that EA has several umbrella companies under them, but you kind of limit the creativity and the ability to really do different things, I think, with the game. I mean, to be fair, EA has done a fairly good job recently with their releases, Squadrons, 
um, Fallen Order, those kind of things. Those are those have been you know good releases. Um, but I was excited to see that we're going to be branching out with you know Bethesda, the Indiana Jones game. I know it's not Star Wars, but still Lucas um, Lucasfilm uh, franchises and and a really um, exciting update I think. And then the fact that Ubisoft's going to be taking a shot at some Star Wars games. Again, I'm not. I'm certainly not saying EA has done a bad job recently. We know they've had several misses in the past. But what I will say is, again, I think it's good to branch out, give other developers opportunities to kind of do what they do best. You know, they've already, you know, they've already said that, you know, the new um, Ubisoft game isn't necessarily going to be Division within the Star Wars universe. But honestly, that doesn't sound like too bad of an idea uh, to begin with. So, no, I'm excited. I think given the opportunity to um, utilize different developers, give them, you know, a chance to kind of show what they're capable of doing uh, and, and bring some new experiences, you know, from the from the different development teams, I think is always a good thing. So I was excited to hear the news, a bit surprised because we know EA has kind of held the reins for so long. But at the same time, I'm excited to see some uh, what other companies can do with some of the, you know, franchise material. Justin, your take, please. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I think that there was a little bit of a um, writing on the wall, as it were. I mean, I, I do want to echo exactly what Michael was saying, that uh, EA has done a very good job as of late with um, Fallen Order and Squadrons. Um, however, there was, uh, if you remember back when Battlefront 2 released, uh, there was a lot of rumbling behind the scenes that Lucas uh, film was very kind of upset with how EA handled the release of that game. Um, and you know, to EA's credit, they definitely turned the, the boat around and, uh, you know, by, by all accounts, it's a very good um, title now that has, a, a you know, they got a lot of goodwill back through patches and DLC and things like that. Um, but I, I think that Lucasfilm, they're kind of looking at the franchise and um, even even with Fallen Order and Squadrons and them basically fixing Battlefront 2, uh, EA has not been exactly very quick with uh, releasing titles for uh, like the Star Wars brand. Uh, they've had essentially exclusivity for quite some time, uh, six years. Uh, I'm not exactly quite sure exactly how long, but... Uh, quite a lot of time and there's been some very high quality titles that come out of that but um not on a very annual basis that i'm guessing lucasfilm as it was expecting uh so i'm you know obviously their their relationship is going to continue um like you said there's probably very very likely a sequel to fallen order in the works uh ea will probably continue to work on some star wars games but this is actually probably better for the franchise um the franchise is is big enough that um, you know, it, it can have a lot of different companies working on different projects, kind of the way it used to be, actually, to be honest, uh, before EA's exclusivity, back when there was LucasArts, um, LucasArts would work with different, uh, studios independently, uh, and that, that's kind of, it seems like it's going back to that model. Uh, it is important that there is kind of that intermediary kind of producer role that can kind of keep the quality in check um, for all these different companies working on on the franchise but it's probably good news in general just for Star Wars fans because there's going to be much more uh, titles in the works uh, from a high like a slew of different developers um, 
like you said, there's a Ubisoft game in the works, um, and then you know even an Indiana Jones game through through Machine Games. So um, I think this is definitely good news. Uh, there's going to be a much more higher variety of Star Wars games going forward and coming out at a more regular rate. What is so interesting to me about this is the timing. Um, we've talked a long time uh, about the this time of year that once you get through with the Consumer Electronics Show, it's generally pretty quiet. Yes, we have Toy Fair under the normal world situation, but that is more of, as you know, here's the newest stuff from the current licenses. Maybe you get a little tease for our uh, new products that are coming for certain upcoming movies, TV shows. But convention-wise, you don't really have a lot until CinemaCon and until WonderCon, which comes in uh, late March and April. And WonderCon has done a lot of uh, building in recent years to having more and more content, more theatrical content. But anybody would say, since it is a smaller con than San Diego Comic-Con, they don't have the big news drops to the level of the, of the other con. And yes, there's PAX East and so on and so forth. But I keep looking at the timing because who knows what's going to happen with E3? Who knows what's going to happen? We had a update the other day that PAX still said that they're planning on going forward there's a lot of speculation and when i refer to pax i mean i mean pax prime in seattle in september uh there's a lot of speculation that it will be under protocols such as um you know essentially you got to wear a mask maybe show that you have a vaccine negative test reduced capacity that sort of thing they did mention that there will be no sellouts uh going forward in that um, if you are not able to attend in person, the content will be made available online. We do know that BlizzCon is coming up in February, but again, that's not going to be related to any of these games. It's related to Blizzard. And that is what puzzles me so much as to the timing. Why now? Because at first you could say, well, this was going to leak out. They had to do it. But then you had, you know, boom, Monday this one, Tuesday this one, Wednesday this one. And I keep coming back to this one question, and I've gone on to various web pages, panels. I've talked to people I, I know. Nobody can answer this question. What happened? EA supposedly had a 10-year exclusive deal. Now, obviously, in the language of this thing, as Justin hinted at, when Battlefront 2 had its less-than-ceremonial uh, rollout and had all the huge blowback over loot boxes. There was, as many people called it, the most downvoted Reddit reply in history related to it. Um, you know, on a side note, Battlefront 2 Celebration Edition is free right now through January 21st on the Epic Game Store for people on PC. What happened? Uh, they rebounded with Jedi Fallen Order, sold well. Uh, don't know the final numbers on squadrons, but it seemed to be generally received. Do you think something happened around Battlefront 2 that triggered this thing? Because remember back then there was talk that they might strip the license from them, and we heard talk that Ubisoft or Activision might be in play. 
So we'll start with you, Justin. What do you think happened and why now? I think it's a little bit of both. I think there was the blowback from Battlefront 2, which was supposed to be like a huge flagship kind of title. I mean, that was one of the early uh, games after the EA exclusivity deal. Um, but I really, I think it also comes down to the rate in which Star Wars games is, are coming out of EA. I think uh, I think that's a big portion of it. Um, like I said, you know, I, I do want to reiterate that the games that have been coming out lately are, are, are high quality, but there's just not very many of them. My guess is that Lucasfilm is, was expecting, you know, uh, such a, uh, a production giant as EA that they could expect maybe annual releases of multiple titles every year. Um, and that, that's simply just not what happened. Um, we, we did get, you know, Battlefront 2 did, did you know, turn its um, situation around and it's very well received now, but it took them a very long time to get there. Um, couple that with, you know, really the only other titles that have been released since is basically Fallen Order uh, is, is really like the only major flagship title. Yeah, yes, Squadrons is out there too, but, um, you know, Squadrons isn't quite, it's a slightly more niche than, than something like Fallen Order or, or uh, Battlefront. Um, you know, I think they probably were just expecting more from EA in general, and that's probably why they went this route. Um, I'd have to actually look at the dates. I, I don't know if, uh, if the, has the 10 years come up, or uh, are they actually kind of going in a different direction before the 10-year exclusivity deal was, was um, dates were up? I'm, that I'm not quite sure of. My um, understanding is the 10 years are not up because the deal was announced just before um, The Force Awakens comes out. Uh, so let's... Uh, you know, that was like 2015, right? Right. Like that. So that's the... That's the uh, you know, where I'm operating. Yeah, they, mu they must have come to some sort of agreement behind the scenes. Um, you know, the thing too is that... Uh, you have to also kind of keep in mind that EA wants, even if like they're kind of backing out of a, of a contractual agreement, uh, EA still probably wants to be on uh, Lucasfilm's good side, you know, and if there was some disappointment on, on, on part of Lucasfilm as, as to the amount of games coming out of EA or the quality of them, um, you know, it really is in the EA's best interest to like, be friendly still still be friendly and not you know uh kind of be hardline on on their agreement so if, if lucasfilm really was like hey look we really need more games we need more games on this franchise and it's you you guys just aren't delivering um it is in ea's best interest i i would think to basically play along and be like hey look okay yeah we we get it we're not churning them out as fast as maybe you want so maybe we can rethink this um, that way, both parties, I mean, EA still gets to make uh, Star Wars games and obviously make money off of them, but uh, Lucasfilm gets more titles out there in the franchise. So I think that, that just that's speculation on my part, but th that makes sense to me. My guess is that that's what the reason why uh, this is happening before the 10 years are up. So I'll get your reaction in a moment, Michael, but I wanted to just update everyone. This is from Bloomberg. So it, it talks about 
the new Star Wars title is set to be the first not published sent by EA since Disney acquired Lucasfilm in 2012. The new sent shares of the two game companies diverging. Wednesday saw Ubisoft's stocks climb more than 7%, while EA's fell 3.2%. The current agreement with EA is scheduled to expire in 2023, and so on and so forth. So, crazy thought. Does the new Star Wars game not come out until 2023, and this is just... Uh, this is their way to kick them in the butt and say, hey, guess what? Uh, you know, this is the way we're going. You better make darn sure that what comes out in the next two years is pretty special. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to get a sniff of these Star Wars games again. Or was there a trapdoor in the deal where they basically didn't reach the required score, sales numbers, whatever, which allowed them to pull it and start uh, shopping it around. So Michael, what, what's your take on this? Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not a contractual lawyer, obviously, but I do kind of wonder what the wording was with that contract. It, was that strictly they were not allowed to have any other companies release a game within that 10 year time frame that w was part of that deal? Or were they not allowed to begin developing anything until that 10 year deal had passed? So I think there's, there's a question there about um, how that exclusivity works and whether it was a release exclusivity or whether it was a development exclusivity. And it could simply be that if it truly was, no other Star Wars IP products can be released until 2023. Um, it might simply be that they were expanding or broadening their base so that they would come 2023, there would be several Star Wars titles that were going to be slated for release or on the table, kind of to go along with what Justin was saying. I mean, the Star Wars franchise is huge, right? And there's hasn't been a lot as big as that franchise is. There has not been a huge release schedule from EA from the development side. I mean, yeah, Squadrons was kind of a you know a surprise. I don't think a lot of people um, saw that coming necessarily right when it was released. And the game itself, I think, is great, but it, it's still a fairly, I don't want to say small game, but it wasn't a, a full $60 title game. Um, Fallen Order, obviously, I think was fantastic. I think they did really good there. But, you know, before that was, you know, Battlefront 2. Again, we saw lots of blowback from that. Um, and, I, and I just think that they're not getting their money's worth out of what EA is delivering. And maybe there was a, a contractual thing that said that EA had plan to deliver x amount of games every couple of years maybe they were on a once a year or twice a year kind of schedule and they kind of fell back because they've had to address some of the criticisms uh, you know battlefront battlefront 2 uh, in particular um loot box criticism things they had to change um and i and maybe it just doesn't flow with what they're doing the other thing is maybe ea has soured people enough to a point where they're just like we need to expand with you know, Bethesda and Ubisoft, some developers that, you know, fairly have had their fair share of, you know, drama over the years. But, you know, maybe just to kind of expand the goodwill from the various development teams as well. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot going on under this. Maybe they worked out a deal with EA that said, yeah, we're going to buy out the exclusivity contract from you for X amount of dollars and cancel that in 2021. Again, that would be a, if it was going to get if it was planned to exit in 2023, that's only a a two-year exclusivity buyout. Um, we've seen other companies in various numerous, you know, platforms around you know the world do similar things. Uh, we see this with coaches' contracts all the time when they're not performing 
at a uh, at an expected level where they buy out the remaining years of their contract. Um, so that might also be part of it saying, hey, EA, we're going to allow you to continue development on games for the next two years, but we want to buy out the exclusivity contract. Uh, I think there's a lot, a lot of this going on behind the scenes more than simply saying, um, oh, yeah, we want a couple other developers developing games. I think there's some goodwill there. I think uh, there's some concerns with EA's progress, um, EA's brand, um, they, you know, the, what their, how their brand looks now. And maybe just the the stuff EA was bringing to the table wasn't what Lucasfilm games or Disney in particular were looking for. And maybe Ubisoft and Bethesda say, hey, we'd like to develop games. These are, you know, some of the thoughts that we have. And maybe that was part of this decision as well. So I think there's a lot going on. I don't certainly don't think EA is going away anytime soon. I think we will continue to see Star Wars games. Maybe the whole exclusivity contract deal is something that disney wants to pull away from it completely and they want to just give whoever's the best developer who comes up with the best projects the best opportunity to do so so yeah we'll see there'll definitely be more coming at us i think as we as you know 2021 progresses and here's the all-important thing to remember uh you talked about the amount of product and during the time that ea had the license they released four games but they also canceled at least three others, according to Bloomberg. And I think that might have been a big chunk of it, because as you said, there were three other games, two of which would very likely have been on the market already. And you get to a point where you're just like, OK, um, maybe this is a case of diminishing returns. So really quick, let's swing over to the other part of the story, which was the uh indiana jones game we know there's another indiana jones movie in the planning stages and that indiana jones has got a new game coming from machine games who does the who have done the most recent wolfenstein games for bethesda and so michael start us off on this one but here's the here's the curveball question in light of their recent arrangement with microsoft do you think this could possibly be, be the first Bethesda games that come out under exclusively for Microsoft platforms? Absolutely. I'm going to answer that right now. I, I'm willing to bet, not much, but some, that this will be an Xbox slash PC exclusive. Um, how long that exclusivity will be? Will it be a year, kind of what Sony does on, in some cases and other developers? I don't know. But I, I do think this is going to be one of the PC slash Xbox exclusive wow. titles. Um, I don't, it's interesting who's developing it because I see an Indiana Jones game and maybe this is just me, but I see it kind of as a uncharted slash Tomb Raider-esque type of game. Um, Indiana Jones kind of falls into both, both of those I think were inspired by Indiana Jones. Um, so I, I, I would see that a similar take on this type of game. Um, maybe I'll be surprised and this will be a first person um, action adventure uh, open world game would not be certainly would not be disappointed if that was the case. But I, I do think this will be a um, exclusive title, at least short term um, to uh, to uh, kind of. I don't know, make use of the uh, purchase of that studio. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. Uh, I think Indiana Jones is one of those franchises that surprisingly hasn't had a lot 
recently. I mean, there were um, games back when LucasArts was doing them, you know, trying to remember what some of them, Fate of Atlantis and some of the other... Infernal um, Machine. Infernal Machine. A lot of the uh, the uh, point-and-click adventure type games. I, I'm honestly surprised it's been this long for uh, a true Indiana Jones type game that wasn't based on a movie specifically um, to come out. And I, I, I'm really excited for it. I, I'm excited to see what they're going to do with it. I'm excited that this might be a, a jump into more Indiana Jones titles. And all in all, if it's an exclusive title, I'm all for it. So I'm, I'm excited for it. And Justin, your take, please. Yeah, no, I think I definitely agree uh, with Michael there. I, I do think it's going to be exclusive. Um, to Xbox and, and PlayStation, and I think that absolutely makes sense, uh, given you know what uh, what we know about Bethesda's deal with Microsoft. Um, now, uh, I, I'd also agree. I think that the game is going to be very much in, uh, Uncharted like, because uh, again, uh, Uncharted is uh, was definitely inspired by Indiana Jones. It was very much kind of like a um, you know, video game version of Indiana Jones, uh, definitely hugely inspired by it. So my guess is that it's very much going to be a lot like that, um, which will be interesting because, as you mentioned earlier, Machine Games is known for the Wolfenstein games, which are first person. Um, could we maybe see like a first person kind of adventure parkour type deal? Maybe, but that that those kinds of uh, platforming and and puzzles and stuff to tend to work a little bit better in third person so i i'm i'm guessing it's going to be a third person game but uh i could be surprised uh they they obviously have more experience making first person titles so we'll have to wait and see but yeah i mean i think this is definitely uh you know a welcome addition to uh to lucasfilm games just because um you know I think it shows that they're willing to kind of branch out and do other things other than just Star Wars, which is also kind of exciting um, that they're kind of willing to look at some of their other franchises they have there and deliver titles there. So that that's also a pretty important point. Very true. So uh, briefly as well, Justin, we don't need to go into a lot of time on this, but we had some uh, recent news on Godzilla versus Kong. And uh, what can you bring us up to speed with on that? Yeah, uh, so I think last week we were talking a little bit about uh, the exclusive or the the deal between HBO Max and Warner Brothers in regards to Godzilla vs Kong. Um, and the news since then is that they've actually moved the date up. Uh, so I think it was originally going to release in May. It is now going to release in March. Um, this is interesting because almost certainly, uh, I mean, I would even expect theaters to be pretty light, uh, in terms of the theater going, uh, I, I would expect it to be pretty light even in May. Uh, but it's going to be even lighter in March. Um, you know, by most information I can see, um, you know, we're not going to really be seeing normal levels of, of, uh, theater going until maybe like this time, next year or maybe december of this year like pr pretty far out like 11 11 months or so would be my guess could be wrong i could uh, you know we could move pretty quickly depending on how things go but even then you know one of the points i i bring up quite a, quite a lot is even even when you know 
uh, the virus is mostly gone and most of everybody's vaccinated or uh, or whatever. I, I still think there's going to be some apprehension to going back to theaters just because of holdover of of the event, um, you know, in people's in people's minds. So even 11 months from now, I'm, I'm not sure what theater look going uh, is going to look like. But, you know, back to Godzilla vs. Kong, you know, I don't know. I don't really know what significance there is um, to moving the date up. Other than I, I, I do think it implies that there's some sort of uh, pretty big payout agreement that went to Legendary for them to agree to this. Um, basically, you know, it, it, it makes it all but certain that, like, it's not going to make money at the box office, uh, which, again, I don't think it was going to make money even, even releasing in May. I think theater going is still going to be pretty light in May. But um, if Legendary was comfortable with moving it up that much um it means that to me that means that there was some sort of agreement that happened financially behind the scenes to kind of compensate them for it um and that's yeah that's pretty much it what i find most interesting too is the game playing that's going on in terms of we talked about this uh, heavily last year so now we had a whole year where there was no marvel cinematic release uh, we know that there are several films done. There's uh, some in the works. We had one division debut last week, and then we keep coming back to Black Widow. And then there's the whole question of, well, is it going to come out in theaters in May, or are they going to have to do like they're going to do with their animated film Reina and stick it in the theaters as well as on uh, Disney Plus behind a paywall, or are they going to move it? We've already seen Sony move. Uh, Morbius date again. There's a lot of speculation that uh, No Time to Die, the new Bond film, is going to be moved again because due to its very high production costs, it absolutely has to have a theatrical release because they are not going to be able to make their money streaming. And, you know, you look at the summer, it's like, well, here's Free Guy. It's already been pushed back from uh a December released, you know, you have the saw spinoff spiral. Okay. That one won't have as big a overhead, but then you have things like Cruella and uh, fantastic uh, fast and furious nine that are due in May. And that might be, you know, like you said, that's pushing it. Uh, something like the conjuring you can put out horror films have done very well at the drive-in. They have uh, lower production costs, but you know, going down the line, ghostbusters afterlife already pushed back a year. Um, you know, Venom, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, the Minions, Top Gun, Shang-Chi. It, it's, it's coming back to the whole thing of somebody is going to have to roll the dice like they did with Tenet. But until somebody rolls the dice and ends up with a box office hit that shows, okay, people are comfortable going back to the theaters, uh, you know, there you have it. And then, not to get political, but then you go into what uh, Dr. Fauci had said. He held a thing about a week ago, and his prediction was that uh, come next, come this fall, uh, you will start to see a return of live entertainment. He was saying that, um, you know, based on the vaccination projections, so on and so forth, come the fall, yes, you can start to see concerts and live entertainment again. And he said, very possibly at very near to full capacity. But, you know, the stuff in the meantime, that's all questions. Now, 
obviously there's a big difference between a 10 to 17,000 person concert and putting 150 people in a movie theater. But, you know, again, it's going to come down to consumer confidence. And that um, is showing a trickle-down effect. We talked about uh, TV shows cutting production costs. We've already seen the CW can two spinoffs for their Arrowverse. We've seen them say Black Lightning and Supergirl are not going to continue beyond this season. We've seen release dates push back, and now they've come out and they pulled the plug on the big crossover event that was planned for this year. So a lot of this has to do with saving money, increased uh, safety protocols, so on and so forth. Uh, but in the midst of all this, we talked about Marvelous Filming, and Spider-Man is filming away. They're looking forward to putting that out in December. And news has come out that Charlie Cox, who played Matt Murdock, Daredevil, in the Netflix series, was indeed spotted on set and did indeed film scenes for the new Spider-Man film, which is set to supposedly uh, play into the multiverse. We're kind of getting hints at that. Uh, in some Marvel projects, we already know that Doctor Strange 2 is going to be... Uh, dabbling with that uh the netflix characters the rights are coming back over and marvel is certainly using them michael what's your take on all this that's a lot to take in i'm going to go back to part of this with the movie releases and and that kind of thing godzilla versus kong and and just in general i think the one thing we need to remember too is we're going to start getting to a point where there's going to be a lot of movies that are held up in the queue that they're going to want they're going to need to push out and i think the other part we're going to run into is if theaters are, let's say that with the with everything goes back to, let's say, 60% capacity. Let's just say that people get vaccinated, things are looking good. Let's say, the, and I don't think theaters are going to go back to 100% um, for a long time, honestly, not just because of the vaccine, not just because of the virus, but I think because people are starting to adapt to a new way of life, we're starting to see a lot more stuff being released uh, quickly to streaming services or our same day in some cases. Um, even if we go back and we go back to a, a month or six months exclusivity in theaters, let's say we go back to 60, 65%. We're, remember, we're now that particularly this coming sub- fall, winter to next summer, there are so many movies that are going to be backed up in the queue that are waiting for releases to theaters to make money. It's going to drive competition where they're not going to be seeing as much money on ex- theater exclusive movies anyways, because now instead of having two blockbusters, three blockbusters released this summer. They've got six they need to push out between May and August, right? And all the um, competing studios are going to be competing for that audience to go to their movie and make that the big blockbuster event. So I think even once um, things are, quote-unquote, back to normal um, and theaters are starting to see a lot more people coming to, you know, to see movies, until this backlog gets resolved which could be years two three years down the road um with releases because we've pushed everything back and and all that kind of thing i think it's going to be a real risk on how much money these are going to make with um theater releases only so of course they're going to be looking at um hbo or whomever to or apple tv or whomever to give them a sizable amount of money to release on their streaming platform i mean the Sadly, the people that hurt are the theater owners, in particular those that are not huge conglomerate theater owners, the AMCs, uh, the Cinemarks. It's the mom and pop ones that have owned two screens in a small town or own 
six screens across two small towns that are going to be impacted by this. Uh, again, we, we don't know. And I don't think we'll really I don't think people are going to be really comfortable about how well the vaccine works until the majority of people who want to be vaccinated are vaccinated. What does that look like five months from now? What's does it continue to be a safe and effective thing or do we start seeing um, it not being as long term as expected? You know, there's all sorts of things that I think are going to play in people's minds for the ne- for the upcoming year or two that are really going to put a strain on theater going as an experience as a whole. Again, I, I like the theater going experience. You know, we've talked about how my wife and I still, you know, to go to Alamo, even though there's four people there to see movies, you know, we're wearing masks and all that kind of thing and and safe like that. But we're certainly not even once everybody's vaccinated. It's going to take a while for people to say, is it really safe? Are we really secure to go? What does that look like? And, and, and what's going to be the first movie to drive that? And, and I just don't think we're going to see the crowds maybe by Thanksgiving next year, maybe by Christmas. You know, by then, you know, we figured through the summer, everybody's vaccinated. Um, you know, in the fall, kids are going back to school. Things kind of are never really great for theaters between, you know, September through November. And then we usually see the big crowds start hitting things at Thanksgiving and over Christmas and New Year's. So I think that's when it, when we're really going to see the big push for some of these movies. And again, now we're talking about movies that they had already pushed back to May this year, hoping that they would be able to show them. May, now they're talking September. Now we're talking New Year, uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving. And that, then we have other movies that we need to be talking about the release as well. So I think it's a snowball effect, which unfortunately is going to be, I think, with us for the next, I'd say, two years. I'd, I think maybe... By next summer, we start seeing blockbusters coming back out, um, start seeing movies being released, schedules kind of normalizing. But at least it's another year and a half until I think we get there. Okay, so Justin, your take on this, but let me throw a curveball at you. Do you think that theaters will have to do similar to what Alamo does, similar to what MoviePass tried, and start offering up a, for lack of a better word, subscription service where uh monthly, annually, whatever, quarterly, one price gets you unlimited access to these films in an effort to get people to keep coming back in because, let's be honest, theaters will make their money off concessions. Yeah, I think that's likely. Um, I mean, I think they're going to have to get a little bit creative on how they're going to try to attract people to come back. Um, You know, it. I think the really the thing that's going to hurt them the most is um, if it becomes more normal for a lot of these big tentpole movies to release on streaming services alongside in the theaters. That's that's really what's going to like kill them because I think most people they you know uh, while there, there's a lot of us that do just genuinely enjoy the theater going experience, um, I think a lot of it uh, at least you know, in our lifetimes, one of the main reasons people go to the theaters is because that's really the only place to go see a brand new movie when it comes out, uh, unless you're willing to wait um, a pretty considerable amount of time before it comes out on streaming or, um, you know, on like for rental or whatever. Uh, if you're giving people the option, you know, the, let's say like a Marvel movie comes out and you say, hey, like you can watch it in your... Uh, in your living room or at the theater. Yeah. There's going to be some people um, like myself who might decide to go see it in the theater, 
who probably will decide to go see it in the theaters because, you know, bigger screen and theater going experience. Um, but there's going to be a lot of people who decide to, it's just more convenient to see it at home. So that's one thing that they, they really got to fight hard for. They're, they're really going to have to hard, fight hard to, to maintain that sort of exclusivity on time. Um, or like at least, at least for the release of big tentpole movies. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, they're going to have to get creative, uh, on, you know, the outskirts of this issue with things like subscription services and, and things like that. But I don't, I don't think that by itself is going to save them. I think they really got to rein back in like what really made them or what really makes people go to to the theaters in the first place which is that uh that sort of exclusivity on on release yeah and it's just very very interesting to see what's going to happen because i think the the first question is going to be well when can we open what's going to be available and then if people are not coming back how do we entice them back in so i wanted to conclude today on uh, talking about annual passes. So the big news this week was Disneyland, which is still uh, shuttered and not showing any um, reopening anytime soon. I know that before the new wave hit, they were looking at potentially trying this summer. A lot of people think they will have to uh, mirror their uh, method that has been used at their Walt Disney World location as well as other locations in that they do reduced capacity and all sorts of uh, other options. But the quote from Disney was that due to the continued uncertainty of the pandemic and limitations around the reopening of our California theme parks, we will be issuing appropriate refunds for eligible Disneyland Resort annual passports. And let's see, so this was the statement and that they are going to sunset the current program. So naturally, everybody freaked out. You had all these people saying, oh, I've been an annual pass holder forever. This is terrible, and I paid, and I didn't get to use this one, and all that. Not too many people bothered to read the next statement, which said, we are currently developing new membership offerings that will utilize consumer insight and deliver choice, flexibility, and value for our biggest um fans so uh michael do you want to address this one yeah i mean i you could read that statement a couple different ways what right one is they're revamping the program to make it more flexible for people um maybe the op, maybe the opportunity there is going to be you know different tiers that provide different levels for folks who are coming from either out of town or for people who are, are coming you know or locals um that kind of thing i mean you can look at it that way at where disney's actually trying to make it a better program and make it more, you know, something that, that they can actually adapt to people. I I certainly don't think there's been a problem with annual pass purchasers, but I I do think in some of the things that we've discussed in the past is they need to look what's the best valuation. You know, there are those people who are the California um, residents who like to go for a couple of hours a day. I have friends that go every week um, for, you know, several hours a week. Um, to ride the rides, but those aren't necessarily the people that are spending money in the park. They're not necessarily the ones that are buying the souvenirs, eating at the park, staying the whole day and getting all their breakfast, lunch, and dinner there, staying in the hotels, that kind of thing. And, and yet they're still the ones that are standing in line for the, you know, to get on the rides and that kind of thing. So you can look at it as they're trying to incentivize the 
people who are going to be staying at the park um, and those who are going to be spending full days at the park, um, you know, to, to give them that, you know, a, a better opportunity to experience everything while they're there. Um, the other side of it is that they're looking to um, make the most value for themselves and, and are actually going to do something that I think annual pass holders now are going to be unhappy with. But I, I think uh, it's, it's a shock, I think, for the people who've been doing this for the longest time. I, I don't know if this is a gut, you know, gut wrenching reaction or something like they're trying to adapt because they're of what happened with the pandemic. Maybe there's some concerns that the existing model wasn't flexible enough for them to continue to bring in money and still offer the refunds on, on the annual passes. What do they do in the event that they can't um, be open? Um, what do they do about people? Maybe people were complaining about the cost with availability of the park, those types of things. So I think we're going to really have to wait and see. Uh, it, I find it kind of interesting that they didn't announce what they announced that they would be refunding people. They announced that they're going to be making changes, but they didn't specify what those changes were. And to me, that always makes me a little leery as to what the plan really is. You know, are they trying to do this as a let's get the anger out of the way first and announce this new plan and make it look like it's going to be enticing? Or do they not really know what their plan is going to be? Or is the plan going to be something that's going to make fans even angrier? So they're trying to minimize that impact and do things that, you know, and stages. I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see what that is. Justin, your take, please. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think a lot of this just comes down to, um, you know, we live in a very unique, uh, novel experience for all these different organizations and people, and they're just trying to make the best of it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it just means that, you know, it they're just going to have to change the way that they operate uh, to kind of go around what's going on it's a very complicated situation because you are dealing with a rabid fan base you are dealing with people who have a long-standing in many cases multi-generational uh, attachment to all things disney but as i've had to mention to people in the past remember they are first and foremost a business. They've had to lay off a lot of people. They are losing uh, a heavy amount of money. And I know people come and say, oh, they can afford to do that. And it's like, well, you know, again, that's not how the business model works. They paid a lot of money, a lot of money to acquire the Fox properties. They've had to pay a good amount of money to get Disney Plus up and running. Let's not forget that they have three cruise ships in development, theme park expansions. They already came out and said uh, the Avengers Academy that was supposed to open last summer is still on schedule to open this year. A lot of people think it's going to open summer. Now, the problem with this is people get, as you can guess, very emotional. As Michael brought up, there are people that go to the park and have a very short experience on their pass. I know people in groups, some have one bristled when I brought this up, but the fact of the matter is, if you go to any of the Facebook Disney Park groups, there are people that live in the area that are habitual attendees. They will say things like, 
oh, I had two hours before I was going into work, so I thought I'd pop into the park really quick. Or, oh, I just got off work and I had a little bit of time before this or that tonight, so I thought I'd come to the park. And that's great. These are people that are loyal Disney fans. These are people that are taking advantage of what of the access their, their pass gives them. The problem with that is when you look at it in the larger business sense. When the 60th anniversary hit, we saw the situation where the parks were so overcrowded, they actually had to shut the gates and uh, and refuse access to people. Yes, they were shoving them over to California Adventure, but the point of it was there was a lot of speculation that these were annual pass holders who were for lack of a better words, clogging up access. And the concern was the people who were coming in from out of state, who were staying in the hotels, eating at the restaurants, doing multi-day experiences, were not getting the access that they got. They came in, they bought their tickets, they booked their hotel, they traveled out to California to use the park. And then lo and behold, they were met with closed gates, sorry, we're at capacity, uh, try back later. Needless to say, that doesn't sit well. And so you ran with that really hard decision of, well, these people bought their passes, they have access, but the whole family event over here, this is kind of what we're looking for. So they tried to play around with it a bit and say, okay, uh, when uh, Galaxy's Edge opens, we're going to put a blackout on these type of things, and then we're going to make it only accessible to uh, people who book in advance and so on and so forth. And it seems like for every t move they make, there's a counter move. And then you had the collectors all coming out. And it just, you get to a point where I think the company had to say, okay, when we're able to reopen, we are probably going to be at reduced capacity. How do we accommodate it? Similar to like they have in Florida, where people who want to come out and go can come but we don't have scores of annual pass holders say, hey, here's my pass. I haven't been able to come for a year. Let me in, let me in, let me in. And that is where the problem rolls around. And so I think what they probably are going to do is there will be some form of new pass, but I think as you can guess, it will probably be tiered. They will probably have it that, you know, when, we're, when our capacity is limited to this, this is your access. When our capacity is limited to this, your access and it may ramp up to, let's say somewhere down the line, two, three years down the road, you may see a return to a more traditional pass. By contrast, I'll tell you about Knott's Berry Farm. Now, Knott's Berry Farm's annual pass is considerably less, it's $100 uh, for the basic pass. You do have the advantage to, they have a larger one that includes um, uh, the water park access. You do have uh, one beyond that that includes not only the water park access, but all Cedar Fair properties. I believe parking's included. They have one where you can get a dining option included. But the point is the basic pass is $100. Well, here's the thing. There are no blackout dates on that pass. The difference is between the two parks, I think you'll agree with this, Michael. If you go on a day that's not overly crowded, you get there early, you can go into knots and in a two to three hour window, not gonna say you can see everything, that's unreasonable, but you can get on several of the big attractions and you know, make a experience of it. So that one is more suited 
for if someone says, hey, I only have three hours, let me go in and get the park. I myself have had to do that on a couple of occasions where we travel and we only had a, you know, a few hours. But we said, uh, I, I remember a recent one where I wanted to go on to the revamped Grizzly Rapids. Tried to go in June after E3. It was too crowded. There were um, all sorts of groups there. Couldn't happen. So when we came back after Comic-Con, right before uh, coming back from San Diego, we came up from San Diego. We stayed in Costa Mesa for the night. We're going to swing by and see my son and our granddaughter. And we said, you know what? We've got about a two and a half hour window. We went over to Knott's. We had breakfast there. First thing I did was go on, get on the thing. We had, went around, saw, did a few other attractions and went away. My whole point on that is that they have come out and they said, what they are going to do is very simple. The 2020 passes were rolled over to 2021. So as soon as they're able to reopen, the passes are good. They're also doing a day-for-day -day match so that each day that they are closed in 2020 will be rolled over to 2022. So right as of now, I would, if for some magical reason they open the park tomorrow, I would have access through January 17th of 2022. Two different approaches, but again, this has caused the backlash where some people have already gone onto sites saying, we'll see only the annual pass people are gonna be able to get into the park when it reopens. So, uh, Justin, do you have any final things to say on this? No, I think that just about covers it. Michael, do you have anything else that you wanted to uh Yeah, up? I know, not really. I mean, I, I like, like you said, I, I've even talked to people at Knott's Berry Farm when I've been there. And for people who are, locals they tend to like that better than disney because it doesn't have the crowds right they can go in they can have a good time and it's fairly inexpensive and if they have a, an afternoon we were talking to a, a younger mother with her little you know her child and she was saying they like coming because it's something they can go through in a couple of hours on an afternoon they can enjoy the water park they don't have the crowds of disney and it's just something they can do and especially if it was when we went there it was a particularly hot day in california and there was nobody there and that's why she said she liked it because you can just kind of go through and and have a good time uh, so yeah i think people need to uh, just kind of understand that we're in uncharted territory still maybe we will go back to passes as they were but it it's going to be a change and there's going to be a need to be a change for a couple of years and as much as nobody likes that and everybody wants things to be back the way it was we're not there we may never be there and we just kind of need to adapt as we can you know and it's funny too because i remember uh, boy, it, it it seems so long ago, but if you remember, you and Karen covered the Halloween event for us, and it may have been the last one, I'm not sure, but uh, you covered a Halloween event, and you made a comment about there were certain decorations you wanted to get photos of, but you weren't able to do it because you got there at night, so you were only able to take care of the ones that were illuminated. And we came to California a few weeks later. We were going on a cruise. And I remember very clearly staying at one hotel uh, for a couple nights, and then we transferred to another one for a night, taking advantage of some, you know, free stays we had at one, so on and so forth. And then we drove down to San Diego to do our Disney cruise. And I remember after leaving the, the hotel, uh, my wife said, hey, I'd like to get my uh, nails done, mani-pedi for the cruise, that sort of thing, since I'm wearing sandals. And I said, okay, no problem. She made her appointment, and I just, you know, on a whim said, hey, um, why don't you drop me off at Knott's? That way I have something to do while you're at your appointment and then just come back and uh, meet me there as soon as you're done. 
And, you know, we had the annual passes, so we go in. And I remember thinking to myself, that was kind of the advantage of it. I got in, got to walk around a bit. I remember um, I went around and I took the photos of the, the Halloween decor in the daylight. I remember seeing a show in the Calico Saloon. And I don't even know if I went on a, a ride, but I do remember, like, I was only in there about an hour and a half. I uh, was shocked how quick Genevieve got done. And uh, she's like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here parking now. Where do you want me to meet you? She came in. She did what she likes, the shops, taking photos of the flowers. And we went on the Pony Express, walked around for a bit, you know, got a coffee, the usual stuff that you do. And, you know, we're like, okay, uh, so I, I, you know, do you want to stay tonight or do you want to head to the hotel? And it was, oh, let's go to the hotel, have dinner, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I looked at it and I said, okay, so there was a two, and for me, about a two and a half hour, maybe three hour visit. And to me, that was good because I got in a lot of stuff. I didn't feel cheated. Sure, there was plenty of things to do. I can remember situations where pulling into the hotel and getting... Uh, you know, being told, hey, there's 30 minutes before the park closed and being able to run in while uh, Jen was getting a table at Mrs. Knott's restaurant, getting in three rides before the park closed. And, you know, I mentioned the other one. And it's all about flexibility. It's all about adaptability. And I think that's exactly where we are right now. People have to realize that the days of opening the gates and saying, let's, let's put 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people in whatever the capacity is, are not going to come back anytime soon. If it's going to work, they're going to have to open the door and say, hey, we can bring in, you know, 15, 20 percent of capacity to start. And that is going to require a simple amount of patience. There are going to be people that are simply not going to be able to get into the park. There are going to be people that, um, you know, for whatever reason, have their annual passes and are going to want to come on a regular basis. My big question that I'm really curious about is what they're going to do for Halloween, because I get the feeling that if the park is able to open in any way, shape or form, they are going to attempt to bring not scary farm back. But see, again, that's September, October. We got a lot. Of, well, I start in August, but we got a lot of time to think about that. And I think right now the priority is let's do what we can to get open, but let's prepare for that. So, we covered a lot of stuff today, folks. I uh, hope you have a very, very safe uh, week ahead. For those of you that have tomorrow off for the holiday, I hope you enjoy it. And until then, we will talk to you next week. Take care.